0: The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It's a a joy uh, to address you this morning uh, and indeed also holy uh, and in many ways humbling. Uh, I remember being out where you are uh, thinking if I could only get up there, I would do it so much better than those chapels figures. Uh, And now it's uh, frightening to be up here so uh, we'll be looking at Luke 28, not well Luke 9, 28 to 36. Uh, I would love if you could keep your Bibles uh, open or your Bible apps this morning. Maybe put it on flight mode or something so you're not uh, just going straight to texting. Uh, thank you, Dean Swift, for reading the passage for us, and uh, the worship team for leading us in worship. At least initially, allow me to frame the passage for us. So in Luke 9:20, just before this, we have Peter's remarkable confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Importantly for our passage, this is followed by the sister passage to this year's One Scripture, One University passage, Matthew 16, 24. Just as in Matthew, Christ reveals to the disciples that he will suffer many things, including death, and that the path to blessedness, or glory, requires that one take up their cross and follow him. Directly following this, we have the passage I'd like us to look at this morning, Luke 9, 28 to 36, Uh, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, almighty and eternal God, you are a God who is hidden and yet revealed, a God who may be known, but yet is beyond our comprehension. Apart from your rest and comfort, we are restless creatures. As we turn to your word this morning, Lord, we ask that you would feed us, comfort us, encourage us, build us up in the faith, and attune us to the reality of who you are. Bless us, Lord, through your word, and turn our hearts towards you. Amen. All right, Uh, raise your hand if you've ever had a dream. All right, pretty good. Uh, Have you ever had a dream and realized you were dreaming in the middle of your dream? All right, this is much more common than I thought it was. Uh, The other night I had a dream, uh, Coach Hogan, the other lacrosse coach and I were hanging out in my dream and he got a call from a professional lacrosse team Uh, the Water Dogs, and they were celebrating their championship, and they wanted to celebrate it with Coach Hogan. However, in my dream, I knew that the Water Dogs had just lost the championship, and so this was what alerted me to the reality that I was dreaming. It's very strange. Have you ever woken up, though, and thought, maybe I'm still dreaming? All right. In this morning's passage, the disciples are confronted with this strange, almost mythological reality. They still do not quite understand who Jesus is and the nature of his divine mission. The strangeness of the account means we need to take it really all the more serious. What is being given to us in the word here? How might we sit under the passage? The disciples in this passage are asleep to the reality of who Christ is. And this is likewise often true of us. We are often asleep to the reality of who Christ is. Yes, Peter, in the passage before, has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet what he understood by Messiah and what our passage teaches us about Messiah still remained out of kilter. I had to slip a kilt reference in there. Um, the sermon then breaks into three passages or three sections excuse me verse 28 to 31 which discloses more about the mission of the messiah verse 32 to 33 which captures the disciples misunderstanding being asleep to the reality of the messiah and then finally verse 34 to 36 which aligns us with the reality of jesus christ the danger of course of this passage like many involving the disciples Uh, is that our gut response would be to see the foolishness of the disciples and simply respond by thinking to ourselves, well, I wouldn't make that mistake. Uh, In essence, the danger is to approach this text haughty or prideful. Uh, The reality is that we are foolish like the disciples. So as we process this scripture, we must resist this temptation to remove ourselves from it. This passage actually opens in a quite peculiar manner. Luke informs us how many days have passed since the previous part of the narrative, now about eight days after. By itself, this seems quite inconsequential. But it is entirely contrary to Luke's typical pattern of writing. In fact, Luke rarely links days. He mixes chronology as he sees fit, best to portray to us who Christ is. Here, Luke wants us to have the previous passage fresh in our minds. That is, he wants us to to be reminded of Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Messiah. But also what Christ taught the disciples, that is, verse 22 and 23, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, And follow me. In Luke 9, 28, when it says, now about after now about eight days after these sayings, it is precisely these sayings that Luke wants us to have in our minds. That the Messiah, Jesus, was to suffer many things, including death, and that his followers would likewise have to deny themselves and take up their cross. That the path to blessedness was not one which had its terminus, its goal in the here and now. Verse 28 continues, after these sayings, Jesus takes John, James, and Peter up the mountain to pray. Why these three? Well, these three, Peter, James, and John, are likely kind of the inner circle of the disciples. Jesus has occasionally isolated these three disciples. For example, at the tail end of Luke 8, uh, he takes these three disciples into the, uh, the dead child's house to watch Jesus raise the child from the dead. And in Mark 14, it is these three disciples who join Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. In fact, we kind of have a little bit of a parallel between the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Just as it happens in that passage, Jesus brings them with him to pray, and they fall asleep. It was not uncommon for Jesus to go off to pray, especially in Luke's gospel. Here we have another occurrence of Jesus praying. And indeed, it does receive some emphasis in the passage occurring in both verses 28 and verses 29. And then in verse 29, Luke recalls, recalls for us a remarkable event the transfiguration of our Lord. Verse 29 reads, And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Note that it is first Jesus himself, which is transfigured, and then secondly, his clothes. The text could also be rendered, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The glory of Christ unfurls on the mountain as if a sustained flash of lightning in his appearance. In the same event recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, 17.2, Jesus' face shines like the sun. And if we were to add the words of Rihanna, Jesus shines bright like a diamond. If we place this text, though, within the larger story of Scripture, we will note that something significant is happening here. The initial readers of Luke's gospel, yes, even the disciples, would immediately be thinking of Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. But there is a stark difference in Moses' face shining and Christ's face shining. For starters, Christ's appearance is articulated with much stronger language, lightning, sun, dazzling light, glory. While for Moses, we are simply told that his face shone, albeit brightly enough that Moses was compelled to wear a veil. Secondly, and more profoundly, for Moses, his face shone because he had been talking with God, while the text gives us no explicit reason that Christ's face was shining like lightning. Implied here, given that his own bodily appearance shifts first, then, uh, then his clothes, is that Christ himself, Christ's very nature, in his very being, who he is, is the reason he became dazzling white. In other words, if Moses' face shines after interacting with God, Christ's face shines because he is light of light, true God from true God, the only Son of the Father. In fact, Luke 9.29 echoes or alludes to Exodus 24.17, which speaks of the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And as such, we might say that in Jesus' transfiguration, we have a momentary glance of the beatific, of the blessed experience of the saints when we pass from this life to the next. In the beatitude of heavenly glory, we will, in the words of Paul, see God face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. If nothing else, then this reminds us that the transfiguration of Jesus has an eschatological bend to it. That is, a little taste of the future, a little taste of what is to come, It is a momentary breaking in of the future into the present. Readers of Luke's gospel would, of course, be then led to compare Jesus and Moses, and they would settle on a singular thought. Whomever Jesus is, he is greater than Moses. Luke then pushes us to this great claim even further. The transfiguration pushes us not just to place Moses and Jesus side by side, but to exalt Christ over Moses, and the rest of the passage confirms this. Verse 30 and 31, if you're following along with me, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Why these two? Why Moses and Elijah? Is this the once-in-a-millennial face-shining meeting? Uh, not quite. That would not explain Elijah's presence. Moses and Elijah appear here to talk to Jesus because they represent the Jewish law and the Jewish prophets. Moses, the great writer of the Pentateuch, would represent the law, while Elijah is considered one of the greatest of the prophets. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets this seems to uh, like a setup for a joke that only dr murowski could properly deliver Uh, (laughs) moses elijah and jesus are all talking on a mountain but what these three talked about in fact is hugely significant for how we interpret scripture and how we understand who jesus is jesus meets with moses and elijah and it's recorded that they spoke of his departure The emphasis on departure is quite significant for us to grasp the passage, for us to understand who the Messiah is. You see, Moses had led his own departure, or exodus, out of Egypt almost 15 centuries prior. Meanwhile, Elijah, as we see in 2 Kings 2.11, himself knows something about dramatic exits. Elijah did not pass through death, but departed this earth in a flaming chariot and went up to heaven in a whirlwind in 2 Kings 2.11. Even more fascinatingly is that this word departure, if we look closely at the New Testament, is exodon or exodus. In other words, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are discussing Christ's exodus. The rock that followed Israel will now redeem them. But how does this help us to read scripture? How does this help us to understand the Messiah Well, if Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets, we're, in in this brief passage in Scripture, given insight to the whole of Scripture, to the whole of the Bible. You see, Christ meets with Moses and Elijah because Moses and Elijah really point us to Christ. They're both foreshadows or types of Christ in the Old Testament. But even more poignantly, because the law and the prophets are about Christ, they're about Christ and his exodus. They're about Christ and his activity of delivering his people. The whole of scripture then is preparing us, promising us, and pointing us to Christ and his exodus. The whole of scripture is pointing us to redemption in Christ. Of this conversation between Christ, Moses, and Elijah, John Calvin said, It was intended to demonstrate that Christ alone is the end of the law and of the prophets, and that single reason ought to satisfy us. End quote. Just as a reminder, I am offering a John Calvin's theology class in the spring if you'd like to take it. The presence of Elijah and Moses here, speaking of Christ's departure, points us to the reality that the whole of Scripture speaks to us about Christ. And this clarifies for us how Jesus would be the Messiah. Remember, it is precisely these sayings that the passage wants us to have in mind, that the Messiah Jesus was to suffer many things, including death, and that his followers likewise would have to deny themselves and take up their cross. It is precisely this that Moses and Elijah discuss. It is this departure, this exodus. It is remarkable to really dwell on this moment. Jesus will have a similar conversation later in Luke, in Luke 24 on Emmaus Road. Jesus converses here with Moses and Elijah concerning the very same, that the exodus of his his people will require that he suffer and that his people share in his suffering. Not far from this divine and, and glorious discourse are three sleeping disciples. Groggy Peter and the disciples come to him probably are wondering what level of inception they are taking part in. Who wouldn't wonder if they were still sleeping? If you woke up from a nap and looked over to see your roommates chatting with Jesus, you'd be repeatedly rubbing your eyes. Once fully awake and beholding the glory of Christ, Peter, a man of action, bold to speak, makes an eye-catching statement as Elijah and Moses prepare to depart. We get the impression he speaks in haste because he does not want this delightful moment to pass. He wants this moment to last forever. This is Peter's Shania Twain moment. From this moment. (laughs) Or like the experience of people from New Jersey at Bruce Springsteen concerts, right? They just don't want it to end. Verse 33. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. Peter's statement draws us directly into how the disciples would have understood what has just transpired, how they were presently understanding what it meant for Christ to be the Messiah. In seeing Christ, they are given a taste, though, of of the triune God's boundless glory. God's glory was being made known to them. And truly, Peter and James and John must have experienced something of the fullness of joy, can you, can you anticipate their happiness? In Psalm, 7, 7, uh, Psalm 16 11 reads, In your presence is fullness of joy. In seeing Elijah and Moses, they too would have thought of Moses' face shining and recalled the prophets Malachi's words about Elijah. In seeing all this, they surely would have also thought of the presence of God in the tabernacle. This is another of the allusions to Exodus in our passage. Not only were they up on the mountain, not only did Christ make his glory known to them, just as God did to Moses, not only was he speaking of his own Exodus. And so Peter thinks, well, just like Israel, let's build a tent that God may dwell here with them. He thinks we ought to build a tent. We ought to preserve this moment. And surely Peter is partly right. He wants to acknowledge the glory of Christ. We might draw the quick scriptural principle here to be wary of assuming that good intentions are pleasing to the Lord. Peter has misunderstood the moment, not knowing what he said. His good intentions do not cover for his lack of understanding. The problem is the disciples have misunderstood what it means for him to be the Messiah. A voice breaks in. Not just any voice, but the voice of the Heavenly Father. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Of course, here another allusion in the Exodus account. In the Old Testament, God's presence was with the people. It guided them, the Shekinah glory, a cloud by morning and a pillar of fire by night. And what came down on Mount Sinai was the presence and glory of God. And when God would speak on the mountain, no one could bear hear the voice of God apart from Moses, according to Deuteronomy 5.25. In Exodus 33, Moses pled with God to show him his glory, and God relented and Moses' is placed between a rock, and in verse 23, Moses beholds God's back. Here we have the terrifying reality of the cloud descending on the mountain, and a voice they could hear breaks through. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Peter, James, and John relive in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. No mere rehashing of Deuteronomy 5 or or Exodus 33. But indeed, they experience something far greater. The disciples do not see God's back. Instead, they see God face to face in Jesus Christ. In the divine affirmation of the Father, the Son is lifted up. The glory of the Father is the glory of the Son made known by the Spirit. God, the hidden, revealed one, makes himself known in Christ. They not only hear the voice of God, but behold the very Word of God. This passage then places us in a predicament, a predicament that is not all that unfamiliar to the modern person to misunderstand who the Messiah is. We are prone to make this same mistake. This is surely the danger of the passage for us, to miss the direct application. Peter thinks he understands who Christ is, and because of this, he believes he understands who he is. We overestimate who we are, and we underestimate who God is. We are asleep to the reality of how things truly are. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink would say it like this, we are stuck in the so-it-seems instead of living according to the reality of the as it is. Living according to the so it seems makes two errors. We are prone as individuals and communities to the error of withdrawal. And we are prone as individuals and communities to the error of conflating this world with the one to come. So the first, we are prone as individuals and communities to the error of withdrawal. Master, it is good that we are here. Peter has misunderstood the moment because he still has not understood the problem. And he has not understood then who Christ claims to be. He has belittled the significance of Christ's deliverance. If we can just stay up on this mountain, everything will sort of sort itself out. We follow the error of Peter here by making the problem of sin a problem that is external to us. That the problem is out there. The problem is in the Middle East. The problem is off the mountain, off the reservation, off campus. That the wickedness and the principalities of evil are somehow far from us. When we do this, we attempt to bring God under our control. We deny the reality of our own sinfulness. We try to put him in a little tent. And we whisper the words of Peter, Isn't it good that we are here? The issue we face today is not the injustice out there, the oppressors over there, the powerful over there, what lies at the foot of the mountain, but the injustice of your heart, the alienation between you and God. Or in the words of Taylor Swift, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. In withdrawing from community, from society, from even the community of believers, we ultimately point the finger of, of Adam at Eve. The problem of sin is out there. It's not. It's right here. Likewise, we are prone as individuals and communities to the error of conflating this world with the kingdom of God. This is the other side of the same coin. Mastered is good that we are here. We see here, and even on Emmaus Road, that the disciples still had an entirely different paradigm of glory. They believe the main issue in life is the imbalance of power, and that Jesus would go and be the strong man who would overpower the oppressors. that Jesus would wield geopolitical power, political power and crush forces that were against them. Augustine broaches this topic. Of in all places, his book on the Trinity. In book 13, he tells us that it was not by power, but by justice that God overcame the devil. The devil abandons justice, but clamors and claws after power. We then imitate the devil in thirsting after power, but detesting justice. Augustine then instructs us, God's creatures ought to pursue justice in this life, for power will be theirs in the next, in immortality. The weakness of the church on earth will in turn be judgment as power is added to justice at the marriage feast of the Lamb. In withdrawing from this world, we abandon justice. And likewise, in confusing this world for the next, we thirst after power. It was not for lack of power and glory, but rather to display the humble victory of the cross would be one of weakness. Christ subjects himself to death because he wished it to be so. Therefore, the Messiah would suffer and subvert the powerful through weakness, fulfill justice through death, and therefore redefine for us glory. The whole framing of reality must shift for the believer, power and weakness, justice through sacrifice, glory through humility. Christ displays his glory to the disciples here, not to flaunt his power and glory, but to display to them that he is not going to be dragged unwillingly to his death, for precisely the opposite, he is going forth on his own accord. He will satisfy the justice of God through death, and thereby take up his rightful place as the head of the kingdom of God. The passage gives another option to us, not withdrawal or conflation, but to be awake to the reality of who God is and therefore to the reality of who you are. Our Messiah Jesus did not take on flesh to meet the expectations of this world, but rather to lead us into the kingdom of God by the power of his blood. One scholar put it like this, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. This is still the quote. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between, end quote. Groggy Peter was playing in the shallow world in between. My plea to you students, faculty, and staff, brothers and sisters, that you would be awake to the reality of who Christ is. In the words of the Father, listen to him. That is, to hear him, this being the Christ who stood that day as lightning before Peter, James, and John, and this day sits at the right hand in all glory to come again to judge the living and the dead. For those of you who believe, when your faith is replaced by sight, when you see Christ for the first time, you will see him in glory, and you will experience the full taste of the lightning of Christ you will be awake to the terrifying and awesome reality of Jesus Christ because the glory which is revealed in this passage is true of the whole of who he is. Listen to him. We are commanded here to listen. Listening, of a course, entails intentionality, an attentiveness, a willingness to be shaped. Such a listening also entails suffering Let us not forget that Luke wants us to have verse 22 and 23 in mind, these sayings. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Of course, we find it terribly hard to listen to Christ. We prefer music, podcasts, the voice of our favorite preachers, the voice of distraction and busyness, the voice of our restless hearts cry out to the Lord while simultaneously seeking to mute him. Our hearts and ears are often groggy. Is there any help for the sleepy Peter, James, and John? Of course there is. God himself is our very aid. God is not a stranger to the weakness of our condition, nor is he a stranger to the glory of his. We listen as those gifted ears in divine mercy. We listen as those gifted divine accommodation. Uh, some of you that have the, uh, uh, either the blessedness or misery of taking classes with me, I often uh, force you to read large chunks of Augustine, uh, and I reward you uh, with a sticker at the end of the semester, <laughs> if you do well. But on this sticker, uh, it's a, uh, an image of Augustine holding a glass of milk, right? holding a glass of milk. And this is very intentional. Uh, Because the way that Augustine talks about scripture, talks about reality, talks about who Jesus Christ is, is that he is milky. Uh, In other words, this is a divine accommodation to us, that God makes himself known, and that we are those creatures who can drink the milk of Christ. Why must we listen to him? Because he is God's very word. In him, God makes himself known to us. This, this listening, then, is to be a very active posture of our life. The people of God could not bear to hear the voice of God in Deuteronomy 5 for fear of death, and yet this very word of God took on flesh to enter into death on our behalf. Listen to him. As I close this morning, I plea with you, brothers and sisters, listen to him and be awake to the reality of his glory. Who are you? You are one who listens to Christ. Listening, of course, is basic to the gathered activity of the church. On the Sabbath, we hear God's word. We hear his preached word. We hear his church pray. We even seek to hear God in the visible sacraments. Historically, the church has always been described as the listening church. While Protestants, especially the Reformers, saw this as an activity Such listening to the Lord living, Lord, reorients one's whole being, for listening entails obedience. It is the freedom of submission, the freedom of the divine one, shaping the very fabric of your life. The church listens. We receive from the Lord, and in listening, respond and obey. As such, we do not stay up on the mountain, nor do we leave the mountain confusing this world with the next, but rather attuned to the glory of Christ, we strive to listen to him. This listening is the very activity of the church. Let me pray for us to close. Dear Heavenly Father, we are needy children. We are in need of your comfort. We are in need of your spirit, in need of remembering the great work of your Son. We plead with you, Lord, that you would not allow us to be asleep, but you would awake us to the great reality of your glory. We are grateful this day, Lord, that you are not a distant God, but a God who is close, a God who knows us intimately, who knows each of us in this room by name. Help us, Lord, to cherish you and your word and to listen to you. In your name I pray. Amen.